Rabbi Michael Weiser lived in Lincoln, Nebraska. For more than three years, Larry Trapp, a self-proclaimed KKK Klansman, directed a torrent of hate-filled mailings and phone calls toward Michael Weiser. It was the typical kind of stuff, white supremacy, um, anti-Semitism, prejudice. He declared that his apartment was the state headquarters for the KKK and that he was the Grand Dragon. And at first, the Vicers were so afraid, afraid to go outside, afraid to leave their family, wondering what would happen. And then Rabbi Vicer found out that Trapp was a 42-year-old, clinically blind, double amputee. So he called him. He left a message on his answering machine telling him about another side of life. That there's a way that you could live without hate and without racism and instead experience love. Rabbi Weiser said, I I probably called ten times and left messages before he finally picked up the phone and asked me why I was harassing him. I said I'd like to help him. And I offered him a ride to the grocery store and to the mall. And Trapp was stunned, disarmed by kindness, by courtesy. He started thinking. He later admitted through tears that he heard in the rabbi's voice something I hadn't experienced in years. It was love. And slowly, the bitterness began to soften One night he called the Vicers and said he wanted out, but he didn't know how. So they grabbed a bucket of fried chicken and took him dinner, a classic Baptist move. And before long, they made a trade. In exchange for his swastika rings and hate tracks and clan robes, they showed me so much love that I couldn't help but love them back. If that can happen in Lincoln, Nebraska, between a rabbi and a KKK Klansman, What can happen in our neighborhood if if just the people here today, if we decide we are going to embrace the kind of love Jesus has shown us, and we're going to show it in our neighborhood. We're going to show it with the people that we meet. We're, We're going to show it whether it's given back to us or it doesn't matter how people respond. We're going to follow Jesus and see what happens. I think ultimately that's the intent of the line from the Apostles' Creed that that we read earlier that we're going to focus on today. Last week we focused on he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And today we focus on this line. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And it seems to me it becomes quite obvious that ancient followers of Jesus were affirming three things. Jesus will come again. And he will act as judge when he appears. And this will include all, the living and the dead. I do say, I'm particularly drawn to one of the early English translations of the Apostles' Creed. They don't say the living and the dead. They say the quick. The quick. I do like that. Um, 
this will include everyone. Jesus will come again. Sometimes we have relegated the language of Jesus appearing again to rather mundane and normal things in life that we once thought thought that we wanted and we finally just given up on. Is it ever really going to come our way? We've been promised Casey's pizzas for so long. (laughs) Do we still believe that Casey's pizzas, even a real thing? Has anyone ever actually eaten a Casey's pizza? And if you have, is it possibly worth the wait? And we can laugh about that, but... But we've talked about the coming of Jesus for so long, it's just like, well, it's out there somewhere and maybe it'll happen and there's some people, it's really a part of something they believe, but well, we'll just wait and see what happens. And here's what Jesus said. Do I have those done? There we go. When the Son of Man comes in His glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. This was important. It was important for the early followers of Jesus, and it certainly seems to be important to Jesus himself because the idea of justice itself has been always a part of who God is. It's always been a part of God's intentions for creation, and sometimes we go back, we think about creation theology and what does Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and And if it says anything, it says that God had this idea of what, this is what I want creation to be like. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. But out of love, and that love also demands freedom. And they were free to choose to do yes or choose no. And you are free to choose today to follow Jesus or not to follow Jesus. You choose to free to love your neighbor or not to love your neighbor. And this idea of justice, over 200 times just in the Old Testament itself, the, the Hebrew word is mishpat. It basically means, as Tim Keller said, to treat people equitably. But the idea of biblical justice isn't necessarily our idea of justice as being disinterested or making disinterested decisions. It's very interventionist. Doing justice in Scripture means speaking truth to power. It's being an advocate for those whose voices cannot be heard. Or or to put it another way, God seems always to be using others to create change for those who are suffering. It is the story of God's involvement in creation. It's the invitation of those who are following God through Jesus Christ to be a part of the kingdom of God and what that means, not just as individuals, but for the world in which we live. And now at the end of Matthew's gospel, as Jesus talks about what it means when one day when he comes, 
It's just soaked through with this language of justice. Over and over in the Bible, Mishpat scribes taking up the care and the cause of widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor, the quartet of the vulnerable. But biblical justice isn't charity, it's advocacy. It's saying, what do I have? And how would God use it? If Jesus lived in my house, if Jesus worked in my job, if Jesus had my bank account and my calendar and and my resources, how would Jesus work in my community? How would Jesus respond to my neighbors? How would Jesus respond? It is incarnational living. We don't always get it right, but we are constantly reminded as we come back and we worship every day, we have the chance to model what Jesus taught and lived every day and to say one day it is indeed going to be different. And the early church said, Jesus is coming back. And justice Making things right is going to be the primary reason, the primary agenda, the primary action that Jesus is taking, and it's going to include everyone. The scripture passage I just read a moment ago is the introduction to the scripture passage that was read earlier in our service. And someone pointed out to me years ago, when it comes to this idea of justice and Jesus serving as judge, it's the only time Jesus makes clear what you're going to be judged on. And he doesn't list off the Apostles' Creed. lists off people who have no voice and people who have lost their hope and people who no longer feel loved by their neighbors no longer feel loved by God not just for us for everyone I think one thing I want to say about this notion of justice and how important it is across the biblical story and now it comes back again with the stories of Jesus coming again is that our motivation isn't out of duty. It can't be driven by guilt. It just doesn't work. It isn't a good motivator. We need a better reason. If it's just by guilt, we'll come and we'll hear a worship or we'll have a Bible study and we'll repent because we haven't lived as Jesus told us to live or or we haven't responded as we should or or we got too busy or or even we're overcome by our own pain and our own hurt or, or we fell victims to even our own fear and our own hate and we miss those opportunities. And we repent as we should. Biblical word of turning and going in another direction. It's it's a biblical word for change. But when it's more than just duty, when it becomes an act of beauty, when it becomes an act of a response to the grace and the love that God has shown to us, 
the motivation changes. The energy level changes. The depth of love changes. Today I was reminded of this passage from Isaiah chapter 58. It's not exactly about this, but it's about how we respond to God and it's about our motivation behind it taking the fear out of that. And Isaiah chapter, it should be 58. Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. Listen to these words. If you stop trampling the Sabbath, stop doing whatever you want on my holy day and consider the Sabbath a delight, sacred to the Lord, honored, and honor it instead of doing things your way, seeking what you want and doing business as usual. So, so if, if you change it from this is a burden, if you change it from this is getting in the way of what I really want to do today, if you change it from this is ruining my weekend and instead seeing what God intended this day to be, a, a day of rest, a, a day of regeneration, a, a day of remembering what's really important, a day of recentering our lives and our families. If, if you can see this as delight, then you will take delight in the Lord. And I'll let you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will sustain you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken, not duty, but beauty. And the church has always struggled with this idea of how do we describe God? How do we relate to God? How do we understand God? Is, is, is it God of love or a God of anger? Is it a God of grace or a God of wrath? And even in the early church, the struggle was there. An individual named Marcion who described the God of the Old Testament as, well, well that's, that's the old God and that's the God of anger and that's the God of wrath and, and that's not the God that we relate to and that's not the way that we understand God and so we won't even read those passages of scripture we'll completely ignore the Old Testament and the early church said no it is one God it is one God I believe in God the Father I believe in God the Son Jesus Christ and I believe in the Holy Spirit it is one God who is living and working among us and the same God of love is also the same God of judgment. And the same God of grace is the same God who gives you the opportunity to respond or not to respond, to love or not to love. And today we get to choose action driven by attitudes of grace, attitudes that grow out of love, attitudes that remember we are a part of what God is doing. And you are a part of what God is doing. Then you will take delight in the Lord. I'll let you ride on the heights of the earth. I will sustain you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. I can't remember where we were going or why the three of us happened to be in this little truck at, a, at, at the same time. Uh, this little Nissan truck was so old, it not only said Nissan on the tailgate, it said Datsun too. 
And my daughter was in the back seat, and she was five, maybe six years old. I think she was five. And, and, and my good friend Daryl was in the front seat, and we had been in seminary together, and we were teaching together, both of us, our first job teaching at Palm Beach Atlantic University in West Palm Beach. And I don't know why we were driving. We're going somewhere. And, and Daryl is talking about how difficult things were. And he said along the way, I just can't seem to outrun my past. He wasn't talking about having been arrested and been in prison. He meant he had a lot of bills to pay. He had been in school a long time, and, and between the educational pursuits and three children, and well, it had just gotten tough, and he said, I just can't seem to outrun my past. And we talked a little more about it, and it was a very adult conversation that we were quite sure not only did my daughter not care about, but she wasn't listening either. And then suddenly from the back seat over the very loud noise in that little truck, she said these words, I guess you just can't follow where your past will lead you. I guess you just can't follow where your past will lead you. And Jesus stands before a group of people and says, listen, when the Son of Man comes again, not if, but when, the nations will be gathered. We're going to be separated just like you separate sheep from goats. How are we doing? How are you doing? Where is your path leading you? It's not predetermined. You don't have to go there. Week after week after week, we sing songs of joy and celebration. And we sing songs that talk about our need and our frailty and our humanness. We sing songs that talk about our sinfulness and God's grace and love. And today we say to you one more time, you don't have to go where your past is leading you. So would you close your eyes for just a moment? There's something about the cool air that brings something new. Hope for change. Life goes on. Today we offer to you that hope for new life and new change. Many of us in the room somewhere along the way have said, I, I can't keep going like this. I, I can't keep making the same decisions and struggling in the same way. Somewhere along the way, we, we prayed a prayer that something like, well, Lord, I admit I'm broken and I'm sinful. And would you take me anyway? Would you take me like I am and forgive me? And would you begin to remake me into your image and use me any way that you want? 
the name of our beloved cross. Amen. So we sing and we look forward to the return of Jesus, bringing justice, righting wrongs, bringing creation back the way God intended it to be from the very beginning. And we want to be a part of that. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time, would you give us the chance to talk with you and to celebrate with you? If you've been thinking God's kind of nudging me in a new direction, I'm not quite sure, would you give us the chance to talk and pray with you? And If you're uncomfortable during that, doing that during the invitation, then find one of us after the service. God only has the best in store for you. Will you stand? The kingdom is yours. Thank you.